This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Christ in the Old Testament. Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 to 25. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I gave you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk with them when you sit at home and you walk along the road, when you lie down and you and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames, on your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore you to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities which you did, which you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you, you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and be and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only and take your parts in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of people around you, for the Lord your your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land do not put the lord your god to the test as you did at massa be sure to keep the commandments of the lord your god and the stipulations and decrees he has given you do not do what is right and good in the lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, trusting all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees and the Lord and the laws the Lord our God has commanded you, tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to, and to fear the Lord our God, so that we might always prosper and, keep, uh, and be kept alive as it is case today. And if we are careful to obey all these law before the Lord our God, as He commanded us, what will be that will be our righteous righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.
What does it mean to live the good life? What does it mean for a human being to really flourish and be all that they were created to be? Deuteronomy teaches us that loving devotion to God is the only way to experience life in its fullness, not just for individuals, but for families and societies as well. And it only stands to reason that if we're alienated from the God who made us, we're going to experience frustration and breakdown in every area of life. Because how can human beings flourish and prosper and be healthy without the wisdom and the guidance of the one who created us? Now, God hasn't left us floating adrift, left to our own devices, fumbling awkwardly, trying to figure out how life works. We worship a God who has spoken. And if we are listening, we will benefit from his wise and gracious instructions for our lives. And what God offers us in his word and in this book of Deuteronomy is not just some best practices, some life hack tips, some ideas for how to make life work well for yourself. God is calling everyone into a deep relationship of love and loyalty with himself, a relationship that will recalibrate our relationships with our families, our societies, and the entire creation. We've been going through a series called Christ in the Old Testament, and some of you may just be showing up today, passing through town. Can I recommend that you quit your jobs, abandon your families, and just stay here for the next year to enjoy the series, Seeing Jesus, in these 39 books of the Old Testament. And we've started to go through the five books of Moses. We're on Deuteronomy today. We looked in Genesis 1 to 11. We saw Jesus as the serpent crusher. In the second half of Genesis, we saw Jesus as the promised son. In Exodus, we beheld Christ as the mighty redeemer who delivers his people. In Leviticus, we meditated on Jesus as the atoning priest. And last week in Numbers, we saw Jesus as the thirst quenching rock who follows his people through the wilderness. And now we are at the fifth and final book of Moses the book of Deuteronomy. It may not be a book that you've spent a lot of time in yourself, but you might be surprised to discover that Deuteronomy is actually the third most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. Psalms, Isaiah, Deuteronomy. I think it might actually have been Jesus' favorite book of the Bible. And if that's not a recommendation for you to read Deuteronomy, I don't know what is. Jesus repeatedly quotes This book. And actually, Deuteronomy is kind of the linchpin. It's the hinge of the whole Old Testament. Of course, it's the finale, the capstone to the five books of Moses. But you'll see if you read on, there's this kind of what scholars call a Deuteronomistic history. That's hard to say. Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. These books are the historical spine that tell the whole story of the Old Testament. And they're all playing off of the book of Deuteronomy as are the Old Testament prophets. Here's this book that's raising the question, is Israel going to be faithful and be blessed by God in the land? Or are the 12 tribes going to be disobedient and face destruction and exile? And the rest of the Old Testament is playing off against that question. Deuteronomy is a massive sermon, or at least four closely linked sermons over 35 chapters delivered by Moses before he dies. The people of Israel are gathered together on the plains of Moab, right on the very edge of the promised land. But of course, as we learned last week, because of one act of disobedience and mistrust, Moses was not allowed to enter. And here he is at 120 years old, 
after 40 years of shepherding the people of Israel, giving his final sermon. Think of the pathos of that message, how closely people would have been listening as this man gave his final benediction, his final instructions, these most weighty words to the people. And even though Moses is unable to enter the promised land by himself, God lets him stand on top of the mountain and survey the land that he himself will not enter. Before he dies, he knows, at least if I can't go, if my body can't cross over, at least my words can go with the people. And long after I'm dead, my verbal instructions will keep shepherding Israel long after their speaker has gone to his maker. Daniel Block describes the theme of Deuteronomy as a call to Israel for faithfulness in the land in response to the grace that the Lord has lavished on them. A call to faithfulness in the land in response to the grace that God has just poured out on his people. And I think that message is incredibly relevant for us today. We're not in Israel's historical situation. We're not in desert in the Middle East about to cross the river. But Deuteronomy does speak to us here and now today, summoning us to live lives in response to God's grace in faithful devotion to God. The passage that Elizabeth just read for us begins with some of the most famous words in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. These words are known as the Shema in Judaism after the word hear. Because Israel is meant to be a listening people. They're summoned and formed and guided and guarded and protected by the life-giving word of the God who speaks He's not a silent God. He is a speaking God. He's a God who reveals himself and discloses himself. And this is the primary word that they must hear and let's soak deep into their hearts. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this simple sentence, which faithful Jews rehearsed twice a day, functioned as a kind of creed for Israel. Before communion, we'll be reciting the Nicene Creed together, and the 12 tribes recited a much shorter creed daily. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is obviously a ringing endorsement of monotheism. There is only one God, one single creator of the universe, one supreme sovereign Lord of history. And he reigns over everything. He doesn't have consorts. He doesn't have rivals. He's not part of a pantheon. One God and one God alone. But this is not some vaguely defined supreme being, the uncaused cause of the philosophers who's way out there and distant. This one God is the Lord, our God. This is the very Yahweh who spoke to our fathers, the very Yahweh who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, the very God who led us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. This is no distant God of the philosophers. This is the God who has spoken and acted in our own history. The oneness of God immediately makes a claim upon Israel. It calls for her wholehearted response. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Words that Jesus himself quoted in Mark chapter 12 when someone asked him, what, Rabbi, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. You might be surprised to learn, as I was, that this is actually the very first mention in the Bible of loving God. Many references before this, 
to God's steadfast love to his people, but only now are the people called to offer their entire selves to God in devotion without reservation. The people of God are called to adore him from the very deepest roots of their inner life, which, by the way, should disabuse us of this false idea that the Old Testament was only about external rules and systems of commandment, and only with Jesus was the heart being addressed. Right from the very beginning, the heart was addressed, and God is calling for a response of love from his people, not just blind, grudging, dutiful obedience. He wants the heart. And of course, this love has an effective dimension. It involves the emotions. And if you read the Psalms of David and his passionate desire for God, you'll see that very clearly. But this love is expressed in a life of extensive obedience. Immediately after speaking about love, God says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts, not just an external code written in a book or in the archive somewhere. God wants his people to deeply internalize these rules for life, to let them soak into the very center of our being. But notice, these instructions of God are not just private and individual, though they are deeply personal. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit down at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. We can almost imagine a series of concentric circles. At the very center is the heart, the deepest wellsprings of human behavior. But then it affects the whole body, right? Your hands, your forehead, your lips. It touches your family, your household, and then the gates of the city, all of society. It's like this flame of love for God radiates from the core of our beings and extends to all areas of life. And if you read through Deuteronomy's 35 chapters, you'll see how extensive this love for God was meant to be lived out. How you treat your farm animals, how you weigh out your flour to your customers in your shop, how you go about collecting debts from poor people, whether or not you put a railing on the roof of your house. Obedience to God affected all areas of life. Love in the Old Testament means covenant commitment demonstrated in action. There's no patience for a false, shallow emotionalism. Oh, baby, I love you so much. You're so beautiful. But then never actually does anything. This is a true, deep love that claims the entire life and is demonstrated in obedience to God. Part of that action involves publicly declaring your allegiance to God, writing his commandments on the doorway of your house and over the gates of your city, flying the flag, we belong to God. My love is not secretive. It's not private. It's not hidden. I am proudly and gloriously a follower of God. And it also involves transmitting the commandments to your children. It wasn't just Moses who was the teacher and maybe 70 guys that he chose. Every single Israelite is responsible for the task of transmitting the faith and obedience to God to their children. And if Israel does this, and here we stand on the very cusp of Israel's national life, 
man, if Israel does this, the whole nation is going to prosper. These blessings, which are so often ripped out of context, are not about individual prosperity. It's about the whole community flourishing under God. And if Israel is faithful, if they love God, if they are devoted to him, if they are scrupulous in keeping his commandments in every area of life, they will enjoy long life in the land. They will enjoy sunshine and showers. They will enjoy safety from danger, victory over their enemies. Every possible blessing from heaven will fall down upon them. If they are faithful, if they love God, if they are obedient. But Moses is not naive. Moses has had 40 years in the desert dealing with Israel, with the parents of these Israelites who were destroyed in the wilderness because of their lack of faith, and now these descendants who seem to be no more faithful and believing than their parents. Moses has long experience of Israel's character, and he's not preaching this sermon out of some cheery optimism. He feels the need in his final message to give them three serious warnings, warning them of three ways that they could derail themselves and bring disaster on their heads. You notice in verses 12, 14, and 16, if you're following along, which I always recommend you do, there are three do not phrases, three dangers. I'm getting these from Christopher Wright, by the way. The first danger Israel faced is forgetting God because of affluence. The danger of forgetting God because everything is going well in your life. Verses 10 to 12. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of that land of slavery. Grace suffused the life of Israel. And the land they were about to walk into was an undeserved and unearned gift from God. And they weren't even going in there as pioneers. They didn't have to clear rocks from the fields and cut down forests and build houses. Everything they're about to enjoy was just given to them by God. Not the fruit of the sweat of their brow, just the gift of God's generosity. It's like God saying, okay, guys, here's the keys. There's food in the fridge. There's a donkey in the barn. This is the Wi-Fi password. If you have any problems, just call me and I will help you out. They were just given everything. But the gift came with a danger. A danger that Israel would grow complacent. They would take the gift for granted and become forgetful. This is what theologians call the test of the full tummy. The test of the full tummy. When you no longer feel any need, everything's taken care of, and then you begin to forget. And forgetting in the Bible is never a mere memory lapse. Forgetting is always a culpable act of neglect because Israel was responsible to remind themselves, to remind their children, to remind their neighbors of what God had done and what God had called them to do. 
That was the meaning of all these rituals, all these practices, all these feasts, all these festivals, all these memorials. So Israel was continually reminded. So it was always in their minds. But there was a very real danger that the urgency of remembering God would be forgotten when all things were going well. And because of their enjoyment of the gifts, they would forget the giver. The first danger, forgetting God because of affluence. There's a second danger. Verses 13 to 15, Moses says, Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. The second danger is abandoning God because of idolatry. The lure of idolatry. You know what the idols offered was a more easygoing relationship with the divine. Far less personally demanding, far less invasive, and much more transactional. The great thing about the idols is that it's a business relationship. You rub the god or goddess's back, so to speak, and they rub yours. You make the sacrifice, you make the offering, you do the routine, and your goat has a baby, or your wife has a baby, or the rain falls, whatever needs to get done, gets done, and that's it. There's no claim made on your heart or your entire life. And then there was also the pressure that Israel would face of being surrounded by other more powerful cultures. Israel was called to be a witness in Deuteronomy. They were called to be a light on a hill, as it were, to demonstrate by their lives the wisdom and the justice and the holiness of God to the pagan nations around them. But of course, in that context, Israel seemed weird and strange as they were meant to be. And they were always feeling a pressure to conform to be like those around them. And Moses is reminding them, God has called you to a life of fidelity, of faithfulness, of complete loyalty to the one God. And this covenant relationship is an exclusive relationship. This is not one of those open marriages where you bring your other boyfriends home and your husband's okay with it. It's not true love to live like that or to allow it. If your spouse doesn't mind if you're seeing someone else on the side, it's not just a problem with you. It's a problem with them. They obviously don't care about you very deeply. God cares about Israel deeply. He has done everything for her and he is a jealous God. And he will respond when God's people offer their devotion to false, empty idols. The people of Canaan were destroyed because of the filthiness of their own idolatry. That's where there were all these empty houses and untended fields. And if Israel is going to be so foolish as to imitate the idolatry of the Canaanites, they shouldn't be surprised when they share the same fate affluence, idolatry, and then a third danger, doubting God because of hardship. Verse 16, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Moses is referring to the story in Exodus chapter 17 when the Israelites panicked and freaked out because there was no water, very similar to our text from Numbers chapter 20 last week. There is a crisis of affluence. There's also an opposite crisis of adversity. Putting God to the test means suspiciously demanding that God prove himself. Suspiciously demanding that God prove himself. 
which was evil because after all that God had done for Israel, after all his signs and wonders and miracles and deliverances, all their answered prayers, they should have been habituated to respond in faith like a reflex action. So after everything that experienced, when the next need comes along or when the next danger is on the horizon, they say, oh, wait a second, we've been here before. This is just like our previous experience. And look, here's our prayer journal and here's our prayer, our cry to God, and here's how God responded. And surely if God rescued us then, he is going to come through for us again. So let's respond in faith. Doubting God because of hardship. Moses, as his last act as a leader, before he climbs that mountain and dies, is to protect Israel as much as he can from those three dangers that he foresees. And to do so, Moses commissions the people to be the Lord's remembrancers, to borrow a happy phrase from Lancelot Andrews, to be the Lord's remembrancers. Because the key to a life of covenant commitment now is appropriating the mighty acts of God in the past. The past echoes and reverberates in my life right now. And Moses is imagining a time in the future when an Israelite son asks their mother or father, what is the meaning of these stipulations and decrees and commandments and laws that the Lord our God has commanded us? Why are we living in such an odd way? Why are we so different from our neighbors? Why are we so weird? Why are we so strange? And Moses wants every single Israelite parent to be ready with their catechism lesson, prepared to systematically induct the next generation to follow the Lord faithfully themselves. You know, the most important evangelistic work being done in this congregation is being done within families. And I want to honor the many parents here who are faithfully instructing their children from their own experience, from their own encounter with God, from what God has taught them, declaring to the coming generations the mighty works of God. So that when questions come, whether you're lying down or sitting up, whether you're at your table, whether you're going out the door, you can answer your children. And notice how Israel, how these parents are not to answer. They're not told to say, because God said so, now be quiet and eat your, your beans. It's certainly not so that we can earn something from God. There's nothing of that in Deuteronomy. The answer the parents are supposed to give is all about the grace of God. They're called to rehearse the story of salvation from Egypt. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. Now, actually, that's not historically true. These are all people who were born in the wilderness. It was their parents who were slaves. But because the people of God are one, because this memory has soaked so deeply in their hearts, they're saying, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. But the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. Guys, this is the Old Testament gospel, declaring the mighty acts of God to redeem his people and make them his own, liberating them from slavery to their oppressors so that they could serve God like free men and free women the gospel of what God has done to liberate us. This is the foundation and the impetus for everything Israel was called to do 
in response to God. And you'll see if you read the Ten Commandments, there's a second telling of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, right before this one. The commandments begin not with a word of command, but a word of declaration. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And if you cut that declaration off from the commandments, the commandments do become something dead and burdensome and wearisome. The grace of God, the deliverance of God, the mighty redemption of God is at the very heart of everything. And even in the Old Testament, obedience to the law was a love-filled response to the gospel, to the salvation of God. Grace fuels obedience. Redemption powers righteousness. And when people forget the grace, when they neglect the gospel, when they ignore God's redemption, the obedience, the righteousness, the law-keeping will become only the whitewashing over a tomb full of rottenness within. As time would prove, and I am giving away the entire Old Testament, so if you don't want to know how it ends, plug your ears right now. But as time would prove, and I'm sure as Moses knew, Israel would fail despite every advantage and repeated appeals from God. Later in Deuteronomy, the 12 tribes are separated. Six of them are put on Mount Gerizim, six on Mount Ebal. And the tribes on green, luscious Mount Gerizim announce the blessings that God is going to pour in Israel if they obey. And then the six tribes on dry, barren Mount Ebal announce the curses Israel will experience if they fail. The blessings are wonderful. The curses are terrible. The list of curses is four times as long as the list of blessings. As though Moses and God knew, these blessings sadly, tragically, are not going to be what you experience. But the curse of death, destruction, and inevitable exile. It's all prophesied in the book of Deuteronomy. Was God being too harsh? Were his commandments too onerous? Too demanding? Deuteronomy 30. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask, who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and you will proclaim it to us so we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey. It was not too hard for Israel. Had their hearts been healthy? If not, for the corrupting power of sin, were people who would experience so much from God, who had witnessed such incredible miracles on their behalf, who were about to walk into bounty and prosperity, when offered the choice between life and death, as Deuteronomy offers, they foolishly and perversely and repeatedly chose death and destruction. Not just Israel. Us, too. Because we fail all these tests, don't we? We fail the test of affluence. We fail the test of idolatry. We fail the test of adversity. Often. If God's blessing, if your enjoyment of abundant life is conditioned on your faithfulness, you are in deep 
trouble. You are in deep trouble. You know, it's a very interesting detail that when God gave the law on Mount Sinai, he gave it on two tablets. That's often been misinterpreted as it was a two-part thing, commandments 1 to 4 on tablet A, commandments 5 to 10 on tablet B. But actually, going back to ancient treaties, which these tablets are modeled on, what would happen was when a treaty was made, when a covenant was, was made, they would take one tablet and deposit it in the temple of the one partner, and the other tablet would go to the other place and go into their temple. But in Israel's story, God takes both tablets and deposits them in the Ark of the Covenant. Both copies of the treaty are in God's possession because God is guaranteeing not only his own faithfulness, which is never in doubt, he's also taking it upon himself to guarantee the faithfulness of his people, which is constantly in doubt. Jesus is the covenant Lord of Deuteronomy. 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, There is but one Lord. Oh, wait, he's echoing the Shema. He's echoing Deuteronomy 6. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ. That is a shocking thing for a Jew to say. Paul is not comparing Jesus to Moses. He's comparing and identifying Jesus with Yahweh himself. The Lord our God, the Lord who is one, is this very Jesus of Nazareth who came into this world. And you see in his ministry, Jesus goes around saying things like this. If you love me, keep my commandments. Wait, that's essentially what God is saying in Deuteronomy 6. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, Jesus is saying something which Moses never would have said about himself. If you love me, keep my commandments. The covenant Lord of Deuteronomy has shown up among his people in Jesus, demonstrating God's own faithfulness to his promises. But Jesus has also appeared to guarantee Israel's faithfulness to the promise. After his baptism, Jesus goes into the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4 records this. Just like Israel passed through the water into the wilderness, so Jesus passes through the water into the wilderness for 40 days of testing. A number that, of course, recalls Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. And he's repeatedly assaulted and attacked and tempted by Satan. Satan tells Jesus, who's been fasting for 40 days, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus quotes his favorite book of the Bible in response. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Well, Satan tries something else. Brings Jesus up to the top of the temple. Says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Jesus answers him, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. We just read those words, Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Then Satan takes Jesus to the top of a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdom of the world and says, all this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We just read those verses, Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. You know what Jesus is doing? He's recapitulating the history of Israel himself. In the wilderness, demonstrating faithfulness to God where Israel failed. Keeping God's summons where Israel had failed. That is our hope this afternoon. Not on my own faithfulness to God, because I will fail and fall short. But Jesus, the one 
faithful Israelite is doing all this not for his own sake, which he doesn't need to. He's doing it to share his righteous life with all of God's people by his Holy Spirit, living his own life within you at the very deepest root of your being, by his Spirit, igniting the flame of love for God, and over time, transforming you so that love for God pervasively touches every area of life. Jesus has come to guarantee human faithfulness to God. Because God wants us not to be destroyed, not to be exiled, not to be cast out. God wants us to enjoy abundant life in the new heavens and the new earth through Jesus. So shall we pray and ask God for the life of Jesus to work its way out in our own lives? Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the gift of your Son. We stand before you as repeatedly disobedient, faithless people. We have failed the test of prosperity. We failed the test of idolatry. We failed the test of adversity. How shall we stand, O Lord? How shall we abide in the place that you have promised? We thank you for the gift of your Son, for his righteousness, for his faithfulness. And now, Lord, we ask that by his Spirit, he would really transform us, remake us in his image, so that we might truly love you, God, from our hearts And that our obedience would be pervasively evident in every area of our lives. Lord, we want to be a gospel people. We want to be a people suffused with grace, who joyfully remind each other day in and day out, week in and week out, that you are a God who redeems. You are a God who delivers. You are a God who rescues. You are a God who keeps his promises. Fix our eyes on you, O Lord, and guide us through this wilderness into the fullness of what you have promised. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.